Grace is something that we have all heard a lot about, especially if we have spent any time in the church, right? We talk about grace, and we sing about grace. Uh, we say grace before we eat a meal. Oftentimes, we may name our kids after grace. We may get a tattoo on our extremities um, in a biblical language if we're extra cool um, that has, says the word grace. And we certainly preach about it, or at least we, we mention it a lot in our sermons. But what if, I'm going to pose this question, what if we don't truly have a full understanding of the scandal and the audacity and the extravagance and the glory and the beauty and the unbelievably good news of God's grace. And here's why I say this, because you and I, in the culture we live in, have been conditioned to believe otherwise. The world that you and I have grown up in, or are growing up in, has explicitly taught us that we will be judged based on our performance, based on how we do, right? So you go to school as a young child, and you learn, and you study, and you work, and you take exams, and then at the end, what do you get? You get a grade, right? And they tell you based on your performance, either that you did good and you passed, or else you didn't do so good and you failed and you gotta try again, right? And we take up music, we take up sports, and it's a similar thing. We're judged based on how well we do. We perform for other people and they judge us based on how well we are able to perform. You get a job and every year your boss gives you a performance evaluation and he tells you how well you've done and based on how well you've done, you've done, you may or may not get a raise at the end of the year, right? After you've worked for a while, um, if you've performed well, you get to enjoy your retirement, you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor, you get to reap the benefits of what you've done and of your performance. So almost everything that we do is judged by someone in some way or another. Right? Am I a good worker, employee? Am I a good mom? Am I a good husband? Am I a good businessman? Am I, am I a good preacher? Some of you will probably judge my performance in about 30 minutes from now. So yeah, you did good or not so good, right? Am I, am I a good Christian, right? This is the world that we live in. So, should we be surprised when we walk into the church and we assume that our standing with God is based on our performance? On what we've done. Right? If we work hard, if we try our best, if we, if we do what we can to be holy, then surely God will be pleased with us. 
Although if we don't make enough of an effort, then he probably won't be. But here's the fundamental truth about grace. That we've got to get this. And that is that grace says that what matters most in this life, in your life, is not anything that you've done. And not anything you could ever do, but what Christ has done on your behalf. Grace means... Grace means that God does not judge you, Christian, based on your performance. God judges Christians based on the performance of His Son. Right? That's good news for us this morning. Grace means that getting saved and being saved and staying saved is not your work, but it's a work that the triune God accomplishes for you. We're going to talk more and more about that. This is, what, this is what Scripture tells us over and over. And yet a lot of us have a hard time believing that, right? So many of us adamantly claim that I am saved by grace. And we turn around and, and we look to our good works as if our right standing with God depended on those. One, one of the most well-known popular television preachers... In the United States, in the entire world, uh, this is what he has to say about grace. He says, God is waiting on you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's kind of my response. <laughs> God is waiting on you. You don't get the grace unless you step out. You have to make the first move. Wow. Now, that would be, in my mind, that would be like Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus and rolling away the stone and saying, Lazarus, I want to help you, but I need you to make the first move here. (laughs) Right? Help me help you. Uh, And we would say... That's ridiculous. And I agree. Um, if you've read the story in John 11, you know that's not how that happened. But see, this kind of teaching on grace, it's not helpful. It's not hopeful. It's not good news at all. It's not biblical. It's not grace, right? This kind of theology is what is at the root and heart of of every human religion. You need to, this is what religion says, you need to do something so that God can save you. Right? God really wants to save you, but you've got to do something first. You've got to step out. He's waiting for you. So, we believe, many of us, that deep down inside, there's, there's something in us, there's, there's some shred or iota of, of goodness that can then kickstart the work of God's grace in our lives. And so, religion then, religion is the human attempt to do what God has already done in Christ. And Jesus, I know you already did this and paid for this, but hey, let me give it a shot. Right? 
Come on. That's religion. I love, I love this, this quote, um, and I don't even know how to pronounce his name, Robert Farrar Capone. But this is what he says. He says, Christianity is not a religion. It is the proclamation of the end of religion. Don't you like that? Huh? Grace is the announcement that despite your best efforts to resist him, God has saved you fully and accepts you fully. Right. Not through anything you've done or can do or will do, but through what Christ has done on your behalf. Right. So we're going to spend the next five weeks, and I'm excited, talking about this marvelous, amazing grace. And we're going to be using the acronym PROOF to summarize five key facets of God's grace. And, and we're basing this uh, on a book of that title. It's called Proof. You may have seen it out in the foyer. Um, it's written by Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones. You can get a copy out uh, in the foyer for $10. Um, you can pay for those at the kiosk or you can drop it in the offering right here. And I highly, highly encourage you to go get a copy and read along with us as, as we preach about God's grace for the next five weeks. It's going to be so good. But, but the acronym PROOF, P-R-O-O-F, stands for God's plan grace, God's resurrecting grace, God's outrageous grace, God's overcoming grace, and God's forever grace. Plan grace means that from before time began, God has mapped out the plan of salvation for specific, particular people, His elect, from beginning to end. Resurrecting grace means that we are absolutely dead in our sin, and cannot come to God until He makes us alive through His Son, through His Holy Spirit. Amen. Outrageous grace means that God chooses who He will save based on His pleasure and His sovereign will, not based on anything that you or I can do. God's overcoming grace means that God, in His grace, overcomes our rebellion and turns it into surrender so that we are able to repent and believe the gospel Amen. and God's forever grace means that God seals His chosen people with His Holy Spirit that we will persevere to the end. Amen. So this morning, we will begin by looking at the good news of God's plan grace. Did you know that your salvation was God's idea? Did you know that? And it wasn't just his idea, but it was his plan and his purpose for you. Before the beginning of time, before anything was made, before anything was created, God the Father chose specific people to love, whom Jesus his Son would save, and who the Holy Spirit would seal for all of eternity. That was God's plan. Amen. That is God's plan. And here's good news for you and I. God's plans never fail. That's right. Never. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Yes. Now, you and I make plans that fail all the time, right? right? Amen? 
It's not just me. Uh, over Christmas, we had the pleasure of, of having my mom and dad uh, come stay with us from Austria, which is always, you know, a blessing. We don't get to see them too often. And uh, and my dad told me a story, um, or maybe it was my mom, I don't remember. Uh, they told me a story that I've never heard before. Um, so back when I was a young kid, my parents had four young kids, and they were missionaries in Austria. Uh, back when we were really young, my, my parents had the opportunity to go away for a night, right? Which never happened. They, you know, they were broke. They didn't have any money. Um, and they had four little kids. And so you can imagine, um, parents of young kids, this is a, this is a great opportunity, right? Uh, because parenting young kids is, you know, it, it just, it doesn't end. Um, at least for a while, you know, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a twenty four seven night and day kind of thing, right? Um, and so they, like most young parents, were tired all the time, uh, had no privacy, and really never got to spend a whole lot of time together. So they get to go away for an entire night by themselves. And you can imagine, you know, some of you can relate. They were pretty excited about that. So so they head off. Um, and uh, you know, go to the hotel. They go to the restaurant, and uh, and and my parents um, don't really drink much alcohol at all. Um, but for whatever reason, my mom decided that night to have a glass of what they drink in Austria a lot. It's called Glühwein. It's like a hot spiced wine that you drink in uh, you drink over there in the winter a lot. It's really good. So she just had one glass of that. You know, that's it. Moderation, right? Um, but apparently. Her, her alcohol tolerance was very, very, very low. And she, she made it up to the room and then passed out asleep for the entire night. So you can imagine there's, there's some disappointment. And I, you know, I put myself in that position. And I, I would be disappointed. Uh, that's not the plan for how the evening was supposed to go, right? This is a, this is a young couple who live in a tiny two-bedroom apartment with four kids and who sleep in the living room, right? Uh, and, you know, here's your chance to be kid-free for 24 hours, and, uh, and that kind of falls apart. And to make matters worse, they woke up the next morning and they both had lice. Oh. So, you know, the, the point is, is that they had grand plans, right? Um, and their plans didn't fall apart. My dad told me it's taken him about 30 years to think that story was funny. So that, <laughs> I, can, I can believe that. Yes. So often, our plans fall apart and fail. And it becomes easy to assume that the same thing happens to God, right? That his plans are frustrated by us and by sin and by the devil, right? And that there's a whole stream of theology called open theism that teaches this very thing. That God makes plans, but based on what we do, he may kind of have to course correct and readjust, right? You know, God made a plan, but it's possible, depending on what we do, he may have to go to plan B, right? So, you know, 
Hey, Jesus, you're not going to believe what Adam and Eve just did. Right? No, they, they did not eat that apple, did they? They ate the apple. I told you they were going to eat the apple. What are we going to do now? Right? You got any good ideas? That's not how that happened. This kind of theology puts God at our mercy. And that's not the God of the Bible. Scripture tells us that God's plans are never frustrated. And that he always does exactly what he plans to do without fail. Let me just give you a few examples from Scripture. Job 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 46, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Yes. Paul Brooks. Sir. It was God's gracious plan for you to have cancer. It absolutely was. I know you believe that. You would not be the person that you are today without it. Narcy, it was his gracious plan to you as well and to your family. You would not be the father and the husband that you are today without it. You would not be the minister of the gospel that you are today without it. And you would not have the ministry that you are going to have to suffering people without it. That was God's gracious plan for your life. God's plans never fail. They're never frustrated. And church, that includes his plan to save to the uttermost a chosen people for himself. The Father chooses in love. The Son redeems and saves and the Holy Spirit seals. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. So we're going to camp out there for a few minutes. Uh, Ephesians 1, starting verses 3 through 5, says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to this. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons and daughters. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Five years ago, yesterday, our son Jude was born. And Jude, as many of you know, is adopted. And Katie and I had had desired to to adopt for quite some time. And so uh, we went to UMC and we looked at all the babies that needed to be adopted, that needed a home. And I stood up in front of all those babies, and I announced to them that I was willing to adopt any of them that wanted to be adopted, and that they should just raise up their hands and let me know if they wanted to be adopted and come home with me. Right? Okay, so that's not what happened. 
the, the truth is, is that, that Katie and I, we, we chose Jude. We chose to adopt Jude because we wanted to. And because we loved him. And because it was our pleasure and our will to do so. And, and it wasn't that he was more special or more deserving than all the other orphan babies in Lubbock, Texas. Right? right. But we chose him. In fact, God chose him for us and for our family. And Paul tells us that God the Father chose to adopt you. Not only before you could make a decision to choose him, but before you even existed. Right? Right. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he, the Father, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, some people like to say that, that this verse, when it says that God foreknew us, um, that it means that, that God foreknew or knew in advance who would have faith in him and who would choose him in the future. Right? So God looked into the future and he said, yeah, David Walt, that guy is going to have faith, unlike these other people. Uh, and and he's, he's going to choose me, and so I'm just going to go ahead and predestine him now before I create the world. But let me tell you uh, that that's not what Paul is talking about here. That the word for know or know reaches back to the Old Testament where the word to know, when God says, I know you, the word know emphasizes God's special choice. And God's covenant love. Let me give you one example. There's many. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5. God's speaking to Jeremiah. And he's calling Jeremiah to ministry. And Jeremiah's saying, oh, I, don't, I don't know. Right? I'm kind of young. I'm, you know, I may not be the guy for the job. You might want to find someone else. This is what God says. God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. Before you could do anything, I knew you. I chose you. See, God is not saying that he knew about Jeremiah before he was born, like, like he knew what his personality and his eye color was going to be, right? Um, and God is, God is not saying here that he, he knows what Jeremiah may or may not choose in the future, right? But God is declaring that before Jeremiah was even conceived, God loved him and chose him and set him apart for his purpose. So when Romans says that God foreknew us, right? Saying, God saying, I knew you. Just like he did to Jeremiah here. When Romans says that God foreknew us, it means that before the creation, God chose to love us with his unconditional covenant love. And church, you need to understand this. That God's love for you is not conditional. There is nothing that you can do to earn it or to deserve it. God chose you. He predestined you before he made you because it was his pleasure 
and his will to do so. And everyone, every person that God the Father chose before time, he sent the Son to rescue and redeem with absolute effectiveness. Back Ephesians 1 verse 7, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. The Father chooses His elect in love. The Son rescues those whom the Father has chosen. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Amen. That's a promise, church. That's a promise. The Father in His infinite wisdom and goodness and sovereignty chooses a people for Himself. And He sends His Son to rescue His people. Let's talk about Let's talk about this rescue for just a minute. This great rescue that Jesus performed. See, much of my life, I pictured God's rescue of sinners something like this. We're sinners. And we are slaves to the devil. But after a while, we grow tired of being slaves to the devil. And so we cry out... To God to please come and rescue us, come and save us. I don't want to be with the devil, I want to be with you, Jesus. Come rescue me. And so God sends Jesus to come and bust us out of the devil's prison and carry us off to heaven so that we live happily ever after. So that sounds like a good rescue story, right? Well, the problem is, is that isn't entirely accurate. Here's why. The ugly truth, guys, the ugly truth is that as sinners, we weren't prisoners of the devil so much as we were partners in crime with him, co-laborers with the devil. Right, ever since the day that Satan said, you know, Adam and Eve, I know God said you should do it this way. But why don't you try it my way? And they said, yeah, we'll go with your way. Right? And sinful mankind has been doing that ever since. Listen to this verse in John chapter 8. John 8, 44. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are unsaved and unbelieving. Right? Listen to what he says to them. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Anytime we talk about God's election, God's choice, people always ask me, well, what about my free will? And I think my response based on this verse would be that you've already exercised your will. And God has saved you despite your will. See, God's grace was radically poured out on you in that He didn't come and save you when you were just a poor, helpless victim of the devil. He came and saved you when you were a willing participant in the devil's schemes. 
He came and saved you when you were shaking your fist at him in open rebellion. He came and died for you when you were his enemy. When you hated him, he came and he laid down his life for you. That is the grace of God poured out on believers. Jesus has done what Adam should have done when Eve was first longingly looking at that apple in the garden. Jesus took the serpent and crushed his filthy head into the dust and proved himself to be a better husband than Adam ever could be. Hallelujah. And we are now called the bride of Christ. When a man and a woman get married, the Bible says uh, that they become one flesh. Right? And so what used to be two different entities has now become one. Right? The problem with a lot of marriages is that people who are now one are still trying to live as if they're two. So uh, that's, just, that's for another day. Uh, that's a freebie right there. Uh, that's, a different, that's a different sermon. Uh, but, but, but God says that we become one flesh. And so everything that was the husband's now belongs to the wife. And everything that was the wife's is now the husband's. And so in the same way, because the father chose us to be the bride of his son, we have now been united to Jesus so that we share in everything that belongs to him. God. Everything. So Jesus gets what's owed to us. And we get what's owed to him. That's a pretty good deal for us, by the way. Jesus gets our sin, and we get his righteousness. Jesus becomes a substitute for us when he went to the cross and paid the debt completely that we owed. Here's a question that we have to answer when we talk about the substitutionary death and atonement of Jesus. When we talk about the price, the debt that Jesus paid for us. And, and here's the here's question. Um, who did Jesus actually die for? Who did Jesus actually substitute himself for? Now you may be surprised that I'm even asking that. Uh, but let's think about that for a minute. There are three possibilities when we say... Who did Jesus come to die for? Who did Jesus give his life for? Three possibilities. Uh, the first one is that Jesus died as a substitute for every human being that ever has or ever will exist. One of the popular answers to this question is, is that God died to save everybody, of course. But... If that's the case, if Jesus came to substitute himself for everybody, then we have to come to the conclusion that God failed miserably. Wouldn't we? You know, God tried. Let's give the guy some credit. He gave it his best shot. And he saved some people, 
but it wasn't quite enough for everyone. Right? But here's the thing. When Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? He didn't say, I got some of them, God. He said, it's finished. He said, it is finished. Right? Meaning that God accomplished exactly what he purposed to accomplish through the death of his son. The second option is that Jesus died to make everyone savable. Okay? So, since we have to throw out option one, right? We can't conclude that God wanted to save everyone and and simply failed, right? So, uh, since we have to throw out option one, many of us then turn to the second option, which is that Jesus died to make every human being's salvation possible. If only we would choose him. Right? So, there's some problems with this kind of thinking. For starters, uh, Jesus did not die for possibilities. Amen. Jesus died for persons. Right. For specific persons. His atoning death was absolutely effective to save God's elect, God's chosen people. As Jesus hung on the cross, he wasn't thinking, I hope someone, somebody will come and choose me. I hope I'm not going through this for nothing. Right? Jesus was thinking about his sheep who he had known from eternity, who he would call and who would hear and respond to his voice. Right. Uh, last week we got to celebrate the baptism of the King family, Chris and Tiffany, and, and uh, Caleb and Kaylee, their two precious kids. Wasn't that awesome? Um, and so I was thinking about you guys this week as I was preparing this message. And uh, I was thinking that, you know, as we, as we celebrated um, your baptism into new life with Christ, um, God wasn't sitting up in heaven, anxiously biting his nails, saying, man, I, I love that King family, and I'm really rooting for him, and I, I really hope, I hope this works out good, and I hope that they choose me. Right? See, when Jesus hung on the cross, he already knew you. Right. He knew you. Right. And he knew as the nails were driven in, that he was purchasing, he was purchasing life for Chris, for Tiffany, right? For Curtis, for Shermont, right? For Robbie. God knew that he was purchasing life for his people as he died. See, if our salvation hinged on our ability to choose and follow Jesus, there there would be no hope for us. The reason is is that because Ephesians 2 makes it really clear that we're not just stuck in sin a little bit, we're not just tangled up in sin a little bit, um, but we are dead in our sin apart from Jesus. We're dead. And dead people cannot willingly follow Jesus. Right? 
Um, when I started PT school, physical therapy school, I spent two to three months in a room full of dead people for hours and hours and hours and hours on end um, so that I could learn anatomy and all that good stuff. Um, there were a lot of dead people in there. I spent a lot of time with them. And uh, here's, here's what I learned about dead people uh, is that they're dead. <laughs> right? And, um, and that they can't do anything except be dead. Right. I'm not trying to be insensitive here, but I, I'm trying to, you know, prove a point here. Um, and, and there weren't some that were kind of less dead than others, right? They were all equally dead. Um, so, so that's what I learned. John 15, 16. Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So Jesus has just told his disciples earlier in John 15 that they should bear good fruit and thereby prove that they are his disciples. But then he makes it perfectly clear that they are able to do this because Jesus, because God himself has, a, has chosen them and has appointed them to bear fruit. Amen. Listen, listen to Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We've got to get the order there correctly. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It said as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The third option is that Jesus died to secure the salvation of particular people, of God's chosen people. Revelation 13, 8 tells us that our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Go read that this afternoon. You are the chosen bride of Christ. Scripture tells us over and over and over, you are chosen. You're chosen. God chose you. You are, you are His elect. You are His. Despite your sin, despite your rebellion, God chose to love you because it was His pleasure to do so. Peter calls us a chosen race, a nation set apart. But if you remember, in the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be his people, right? And that's the theme that runs all the way through the Old Testament, is, is God's steadfast covenant love towards his chosen people. Why did God choose Israel? Right? Was it because they were better than the other nations? Or somehow more deserving? No. Scripture makes it clear that that wasn't the case. He chose them because it was his pleasure to do so. And, and in Israel, in the Old Testament, we see a picture, a foreshadowing of God's church. God didn't choose all nations. God chose Israel. And God does not choose all peoples. He chooses his elect. 
The Father chooses, the Son saves those whom He has chosen, and the Holy Spirit seals those whom the Son has purchased and redeemed. Ephesians, back to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We're getting close here. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Now we could preach an entire sermon on these, these two verses here, but, but the point is this. If, if the Father has chosen you and the Son has redeemed you, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And to seal something replies a lot of things. But most importantly, it implies ownership. Amen. So when God seals you with the Spirit, He's saying, you're mine. Right. You belong to me. Good. And no one, no one can touch you Come on. when you belong to me. No one can change that. No one can take you away from me. You're mine. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I love my kids with all of my heart. Katie did such a great job illustrating this last week. Um, but my love for them is not based on their behavior. Yeah. If it was, I would have given them away a long time ago. <laughs> my parents would have done for me. But I love them because they're mine. Right? Right? You love your kids because they're yours. I don't, you know, as cute as your kids might be, I don't love them like you do because they're not mine. They're yours. And you don't love my kids like I do because they're not yours. They're mine. And God says to you, believer, you are mine. You belong to me. And that's grace. Now, I, I am not unaware of the fact that this is a difficult doctrine to understand and to comprehend and to work through and to talk about. Um, I understand that there are a lot of questions. Um, one of the first questions, and, and by the way, I invite your questions after the service. I want to talk to you. Uh, I want to encourage you. I want to dialogue with you. One of, one of uh, the first questions, of course, is why does God choose some and not others? Right? That's a hard question, isn't it? Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Isaac and not Ishmael? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why did God choose Israel and and not one of the other nations of that time? Why did God choose me? Um, can Can I be honest with you? Um, preachers have to do a better job of admitting when they don't know. I don't have an answer for you. And you know what? Pastor Mark and Don and Daryl don't have answers for you on that either. Um, I don't I don't know why God chooses some and not others. After Paul unpacks the doctrine of God's election, Romans 9 through 11, we didn't even get to Romans 9 through 11 today. Um, but, but Paul goes through and talks about God's choice, God's choice of Israel, God's election of specific people. And this is how he ends those three chapters, by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom 
and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. As Christians, we're not called to know all the mystery of God, but we're called to trust him and to remember that he's good. So, I want to end with this this morning. Why does this matter? Why, why does God's plan, grace, matter? Why do we need to talk about that? Again, we could, we could use an entire sermon to talk about why this matters, the implications. But let me just highlight two things for you in closing. Um, the first is, is that plan, grace, promises, and provides complete and utter security. See, there is absolutely nothing more debilitating than thinking that your salvation and your right standing with God somehow depends on you. Nothing. See, that's that's why religious people are miserable. Amen. Right? Because you're thinking every moment of the day, have have I done enough? Are the scales tipped the right way? You know? What, what, if, what, if, what if I sin and then I die right after I sin before I've had the chance to repent? This is how religious people think. What if, what if what I did was just not enough? Martin Luther, the great reformer, is a great example of this. Um, before he became the great reformer that he was, he was, he was a monk in the Catholic Church. And he was absolutely miserable. And spent hour after hour after hour after hour confessing every tiny little sin that he could think of. Right? Because he thought, what if, what if I miss one? Right. right? What if Jesus comes back and what I did wasn't enough? That is the most miserable life, I think, that exists. Plain grace means that according to God's will and God's purpose, like we sang earlier, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all, right? We, we don't sing Jesus paid some. That wouldn't make a good song. Right? Some to him I owe. Uh, he, he paid it all. He paid it all. And that means there's nothing left for you to pay. Right. Nothing. And so Jesus says then to the tired religious person hoping they've done enough he says come to me come to me and you'll find rest. Come to me and you'll find your hope. You'll find your security. People, people who understand this and believe this are people who are able to face every circumstance that life would throw at them and they're able to suffer well for the sake of the gospel, because they know whose they are. They know that God's plan for them, even when they don't understand it, is always good. And they know that God's plan will not and cannot fail. You are sealed, and God says, you're mine. Secondly, plain grace ensures that God, and God alone, it's all of the glory. 
All of it. I have to go back to Ephesians 1 and say, what's the end goal here? So, so the Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit seals. The end goal, as it says in verse 6 and other places, is the praise of His glorious grace. So when people are saved, the response can never be, look what I did, right? Or God, look what we did. You know, we showed the devil. We did it, right? The right response is to fall on our face before our Father to worship God, to say, look what God did, right? I was broken. I was a mess. I was a dying, dead, six feet under corpse. And look what God did. Look what he did. Right? When people look at your life and see the evidence of God's amazing grace in you, they should say, wow, look what God did. Look what God did. Church, your plans and your dreams may fail. They will at some point. They might be failing and falling apart as we speak. Rest assured, God's plan for you never fail. Never. Look, look what God has done. Look what He's done. Uh, let's pray together, and then we're gonna we're gonna worship together in response to God's word, in response to who He is, in response to what He's done in our lives. We're gonna give Him the glory the praise of His glorious grace. Father, this is hard. This is difficult for, for our human minds to grasp, to understand. And we need Your help in trusting and believing in You and in Your absolute goodness to Your people. God, I just want to celebrate your grace this morning. I want to celebrate that when I was dead, you made me alive. You spoke into the tomb. You said, come forth. And you made me alive. And you united me to your son so that everything that's his is now mine. I'm the bride of Jesus. And my entire debt has been wiped away. Thank you that you have brought me and brought us into your fold. That you've stamped your seal of ownership on us. That you declare to all powers and authority that we belong to you. And that nothing, nothing can tear us out of your hand. And so, God, the only thing that we can do in response to that is is to worship you. To give you the glory that you alone are worthy of. And so, help us to do that now. Help us to worship you. Help us to praise you. Help us to sing the praises of your glorious grace. And thank you that we get to do that for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.